Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with author and scholar Dr. Carmen Imes. Dr. Imes is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University and is the author of Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and her new book, Bearing God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters, both of which I highly recommend. Uh, In this episode, Dr. Imes talks about some of the ways that the Old Testament scripture is misunderstood or misapplied to American politics today, and she also gives us some coaching on how we can graciously respond to people that might be misrepresenting or misapplying uh, scripture. Uh, We also nerd out a little bit about the biblical imagery of the sea dragon, also known as the Leviathan, the chaos monster in scripture. Uh, So I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. So without further ado, here is Dr. Carmen Iams. So one of my favorite images in scripture is the Leviathan or the sea serpent, but it weirds a lot of people out. It doesn't Mm -hmm. usually make headlines for this sermon series. Uh, (laughs) As a brilliant Old Testament scholar, what's your take on the sea serpent? Give give us just an overview of it, and then what's your take on it? Yeah, so... The sea serpent is not is in, in is hiding in plain sight in a few places in the Bible. Uh, it's not again, like you said, going to show up in very many sermon series, but it does have a sense of fascination for readers of Scripture. And so, the first place we come across a sea serpent is in Genesis chapter one, when God is creating the creatures of the sea. The, the, the those who live in the the waters include. Hatanim Hagdolim, the great sea serpent. And what's striking about that to me is that here it's a good thing. It's a it's a creature that God made that's under his rulership, and there's nothing there's no threat. Uh, it, it it's something beautiful that God made. Then it it sort of morphs through the biblical story. We we get a an appearance of the Tanin in in Exodus. So God tells Moses to throw down his staff and it will become a snake. And when he when he gives Moses the, the sign at Sinai, the staff is going to become a nahash, which is the normal word for snake. It's the word for snake in Genesis three. But when he actually does go to Pharaoh and confront him, he throws down the staff and it becomes a tanin, a sea serpent, which is super cool because the symbol of Pharaoh's authority is a serpent. You can see it on any image of Pharaoh. He's got it on his forehead. And it was a symbol of his royal authority. So by becoming a serpent that gets swallowed, like Moses' serpent swallows the serpents of Pharaoh, it's a warning of what's to come when later in the story the Egyptian army follows the Israelite the Israelite people into the sea and then is swallowed by the sea. We we get the word swallow again in chapter 15 when they're singing about God's victory. So indeed the sea serpent is swallowed uh, in the story of the Exodus. And then the prophets and the psalmists love to celebrate and reflect back on this and they think of Pharaoh and of Egypt as a sea serpent uh, to be tamed or cut up in some places. And so it's a fascinating image. And then, and then when you get to the book of Job, that's my other favorite place where we find the sea serpent. God seems to be holding up the serpent or Leviathan, they're called Leviathan, 
as an example of one of the wild and wonderful creatures that he's made. Again, we're getting it back in the same vein as Genesis 1, that the sea serpent is a good thing, a good part of God's creation. And Richard Middleton argues that the the sea serpent, God uses this example because he's like Job, that Job's willingness to question God and to call for God's response is the wildness of his speech is something God welcomes and delights in the way he delights in Leviathan. So that's a fascinating, fascinating story. And then, of course, we have a dragon in the book of Revelation, lots of imagery of dragon, the dragon being defeated, and the dragon is then connected with the serpent from Genesis 3. So lots of Lots of imagery winding its way through scripture, snaking its way through scripture. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> so we, I mean, our project's called Disarming Leviathan, and, and we're kind of riffing on that that thing that happens in scripture, but other like early church fathers riff on this theme too, of it being an image of chaos evil that can be tethered or that could be leveraged, especially by, you know, Pharaoh, yeah, like political leaders. Yeah, yeah. And we certainly see some of that in our day where there's a stirring up of toxic anxiety, mm. rage. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's a big enemy out there mm-hmm. and dehumanizing language. And, and one of the things that uh, Gregory the Great, who um, was kicking around the sixth century, is a, one of the early popes, he said that Leviathan often presents itself to people who are righteous as righteousness. Hmm. It's just, it never presents itself as fully evil. Hmm. But it always presents itself like the serpent in the garden as a good. Hmm. Uh, because who, and he kind of argues, because who that is righteous would welcome in evil into hmm. their home or into their life. Hmm. And we see some of that deception here. One of the ways that we see that is the use of scripture, especially the biblical story or like, Ten Commandments. In many American Christian nationalist circles, you'll see statements like, we need to get the Ten Commandments in public schools or mm-hmm. in courtrooms. Or mm-hmm. what, it, should we do that? <laughs> no, I don't think we should. Okay, which go on, go on. might be a surprising thing for me to say because I'm the lady who wrote the book that's subtitled, Why Sinai Still Matters. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe they're still valid. I think they're super important. And I try to make the case in my book that Christians actually have an essential connection to the law at Sinai and that we uh, we neglect it at our peril. We, we can't know who we are or why we're here without it. However, to post the Ten Commandments in public is not I don't think it accomplishes what people are trying to have it accomplish for a couple of reasons. But the biggest reason is because when we post the Ten Commandments, they're always divorced from their literary context and historical context. So you get these two tablets with 10 things to do and not mostly not to do, but you don't have any sense for the, the, the question, why? Why are we supposed to do or not do these things? Who is giving these commands and who are they being to whom are they being given? And so I think it's crucial that we recognize where the Ten Commandments appear in the book of Exodus. It's not before God rescues them from Sinai. It's not as though Moses shows up at the border of, of Egypt and says, hey guys, good news. I can get you out of here if you sign on the dotted line and say that you'll do these 10 things. 
rather God rescues the people because they're they're being oppressed and they cry out. He rescues them, not because they're especially moral or because they deserve to be rescued, but because of his covenant promises to Abraham. These are Abraham's descendants. God rescues them. He brings them to Sinai, and then he gives them the law. So the law is not a prerequisite for salvation. It's not a path to a better society. He's already rescued them and established them as a society, and now he's giving them their marching orders. He's giving them their mission. Here is how you will represent me among the nations. Here is how other nations will know what I am like when they see you living in this way. So by divorcing them from the context, we're basically telling people, you have to do this mission, but you don't know your commander and you haven't been saved. (laughs) So that seems problematic to me. And it also fails to recognize that the Ten Commandments were addressed to the covenant people. These are the people God rescued who have been brought into a special covenant with him and who have signed on willingly to that covenant. By posting them in public schools, we're giving the message that they somehow apply to everyone. Now, that's not to say, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that there's not a universal moral standard. But it, what I am saying is that it's impossible for a public school kid who doesn't know Jesus to take God's name in vain. Because the only people who bear God's name are the people who've been brought into covenant with God, who, who've been stamped with his name and now are his representatives. So it's it's meaningless to tell unbelievers not to bear God's name in vain because they don't in the first place. Yeah, and I know that you've you've written about that. And so for those of you who are listening, if you haven't picked up Dr. Iams' book yet, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, I highly recommend it. I know that for me, growing up, the command to not take the Lord's name in vain was like, don't curse. Yeah. Right. And Don't use the name Jesus as a swear word or say, yeah, exactly. oh, my G-O-D. Yeah, which is, you tease out that it's actually exponentially more intense. Yes, it's yes. taking on the name of Christian, but yeah. then living in ways that are unlike Christ. Yes, it's, uh, this is not at all limited to our speech. And again, it's not directed at the generic use of God's name. So if we think that by policing the language of public school students, we're somehow going to get a more just society or a more Christian nation. We've put the cart before the horse. We need to invite people into a living relationship with the God who made them first. Mm -hmm. And then they will bear his name. And then we can talk about how to bear it well. Um, But it it doesn't work to do that in a secular context. This is a message for the church. So, that's something that we'll frequently hear is that America is a Christian nation. So when you're talking about the church, uh, many in our churches, the, especially the evangelical church across America, feel like or have a sense or intuit that America is Christian. And (laughs) you you have some concerns. I have some concerns about that narrative because it's not true. Some of our founding fathers were Christian men and they wanted the freedom to practice their Christian faith in a place where they could be not coerced to practice another religion. But they actually set up our country as a, as a, a nation with religious freedom not as a Christian nation. So it, it may be a biblical impulse to give people this freedom, 
but that doesn't make us a Christian nation. You are allowed to be Muslim in America. You are allowed to be Buddhist in America. You are allowed to be an atheist in America. And our constitution protects your right to do that. This is another reason why posting the Ten Commandments doesn't work, because actually eight of the ten are unconstitutional. So it's okay to tell school kids not to murder each other, but if you are telling them not to worship other gods, you've just taken away their constitutional freedom of religion. Mm. So I want every American to follow the Ten Commandments, but I don't want them to do that in the absence of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so my method of getting there is different than posting the Ten Commandments. If I was going to post something on every wall, maybe I would post the a, a painting of the crossing of the Red Sea or something, something that shows the deliverance of God rather than just the um, the legislation that results. Mm, that's good. I think one of the impulses that many people feel to, to at claiming America is a Christian nation is one they've been discipled towards it. Yeah. You know, in many churches across the country, there the American flag is prominently displayed next to a cross or on the stage. And there's mm-hmm. certain sermons that are done at hot Fourth of July that are in stage. Right. Right. So that that kind of syncretism. I mean, even in um, did you ever have you ever used a hymn book? I'm sure. Oh yeah, you have. Yeah. Uh, so if you check out most hymn books, in usually in the back, there's patriotic songs. Oh dear. So in yeah. In the hymn book, right? Um, and and I think in most people's lived experience, these two things just sync up yeah, yeah. Uh, to become and, the same thing. And maybe we don't think it's weird until we move to another country. So, Caleb, I lived in Canada for four years. And what's fascinating is that in Canada on July 1st, which is our Canada Day celebration, same ends up being usually the same weekend as the 4th of July, but celebrating a different country – um, there are also patriotic songs in church, but they are Canadian patriotic songs. Mm. And there's a Canadian flag flying. And it, it's really fascinating to put this side by side with American nationalism, Christian nationalism. There was a, a book project, a Bible project, while I live in, lived in Canada, a publisher who shall remain nameless had the idea of publishing a Bible that included the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, oh, yeah. the U.S. Constitution and the uh-huh. Bill of Rights. Yep. And I saw the ad and I went, what? Yeah, the Patriots Bible. Because to bind the Constitution and, and Bill of Rights on, in the, inside the same cover as sacred scripture is to say something about their status mm-hmm. as divinely inspired, inerrant, authoritative, whatever. This w- seemed like a good idea to somebody – but in Canada, when I showed my students, they laughed and they were like, what, is there going to be a Canadian edition? Like, what, what is, like, it, it, it seems like it ignores the fact that the Bible wasn't even written in America. It came here many, many centuries later. There's an entire global church and a shared history in the global church that goes back long before America existed. So it just feels really asymmetrical to put the U.S. Constitution in with sacred scripture. So thankfully, the publisher responded to the torrent of criticism that came at them, and they pulled the project. For now. 
<laughs> well, okay. I, yeah, <laughs> I might be too cynical. There's money out there to be made with that kind of stuff. Oh, there is. Oh, there is. So one of the things that we find, and I know many listeners have had a similar experience, where especially Old Testament scripture is quoted mm-hmm. in some of the public speeches by yes. Christian nationalist leaders. They'll be yes. alluded to. Um, there's many leaders who will weave them in and out of their stump speeches. And yep. one of the favorites is Second uh, Chronicles 714. <laughs> I was just going to look it up. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the one. i doing my best. I think this is the NIV. Uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Yes. Uh, God bless America from sea to sea. Like, so yeah. it gets used, that text gets used usually to speak about uh, American reform or reforms to American culture or politics. Or I've even been in the room when someone's used that text to talk about taking over the local school board. Uh, so their application of this text is if we can take over our local school board, God will heal our land. Wow. Is that right? <laughs> So I love the impulse to use scripture, and I am somebody who believes that the Old Testament is still relevant. I'm an Old Testament professor. I spend all day, every day, trying to convince people that the Old Testament is still relevant, that we should read it, that we should use it. That is not how I mean to use it, um, because what the problem with that reading of Chronicles, Second Chronicles 7.14, is that it ignores the historical context, it ignores the literary context, and it ignores the theological context. And those three dimensions have got to be taken into consideration so that we don't distort the word of God and use it to our own ends. There's a lot of harebrained stuff out there. And for anybody who's listening who wants to know, how can I test to know who's reading the scripture rightly? Who who has the best interpretation? How do I know when it's being distorted? I tell my students it's like a three-legged stool. A three-legged stool will not stand if it doesn't have all three legs. And the three legs of biblical interpretation are our historical context, literary context, and theological context. And if you are ignoring any one of those, your interpretation is suspect. You might accidentally be right. But it's not going to be because you did your like due diligence. So what's going on in Second Chronicles seven fourteen? Solomon is dedicating the temple to Yahweh in the land of Israel, and the Lord appears and says this to Solomon, and he's speaking to a nation that has been covenantally unfaithful. They're in a a, a set covenant with Yahweh that they received at Sinai. They've been unfaithful to that. And God anticipates that they'll be unfaithful again in the future. And so he's warning them that if they want to experience the covenant blessings, they have to live faithfully to the covenant. Now, it's true that the church today needs to continue to live faithfully to the covenant with Yahweh. We're in a different social situation. So it's no longer we as a nation are covenanted with Yahweh. It's now as believers, we are built together into a temple for the Holy Spirit. So it's not to say that there's no healing available for us when we're faithful. The problem is is merging in our minds the United States of America with ancient Israel. We are not a theocracy. We are a nation with religious freedom for whom God is not our, our king. 
in a formal sense, like it was for ancient Israel. Now, for you and I, Caleb, we we acknowledge God as our king. For any Christian follower of Jesus, we acknowledge Jesus as our king, but but we don't in we don't nationally acknowledge God as our king. We have a sort of tip of the hat in that direction with the words in God we trust on our link on our um, coins and on our bills. But it's not a not any kind of formal sense where the Bible is our governing authority. So, so I feel like what we need to see with uses of Scripture in the public square is an acknowledgement that the United States is not Israel, and we we have to do that work of translating. Okay, where are we at in history, and what does that mean about where we stand in relation to this text theologically? And when we just insert ourselves into ancient texts, it's usually at the expense of clarity and uh, and the truth of what that text is actually saying. So the next time I'm at, uh, you know, the 12-year-old's birthday party and my cousin starts quoting all this scripture at me, and, you know, for some of us, maybe it's been a while since we've engaged Second Chronicles. So mm-hmm. what coaching would you give to us? as we're talking to friends and family members who are just kind of proof texting or they're just throwing Bible verses at us that are directly connected to, you know, like we have to, uh, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we have to protect your second amendment rights to bear arms. What can I do? What can we do? Yeah. So I, I think one maybe this would be a gentle way to turn the conversation I mean, one approach would be to just change the subject. But I think if we actually wanted to engage the ideas, we might say, you know, I have heard that verse so many times. Have you ever read the rest of the chapter? Like, let's read it, because I'm so curious what it is actually doing for the ancient Israelites. What, What did God mean when he said this to them? What was the situation they were facing historically? And, and how was this going to be lived out in their context? Because that's, in my experience, the, the more gritty we get with historical cultural context and paying attention to the literary design of a book and where something falls in a book, the, the easier it is actually to apply it to, to our context today. So sometimes people fear that if we get lost in the weeds with ancient culture and ancient history, that we won't have any devotional value left in it. And I have found it to be precisely the opposite. St. Augustine is someone who was apparently concerned about historical background getting in the way. Um, I'm not an Augustine expert, but I have read his commentary on the Psalms, which is super long. And he, he wrote a sermon on every single Psalm And what he does with the Psalms is whenever there's historically gritty information, like the names of nations or kings or people, like specific people, he etymologizes his way out of history. He'll say, oh, Shechem, that sounds like the word for shoulder. Therefore, this is about shoulders. Uh, Or he'll, he'll say, Moab, that has the word father in it. And so that you know, because Av means father. So this is really about God's fatherhood. And so he he tries to get us away from history to find some devotional meaning in it, and therefore takes us completely wide of the mark in terms of what the, the psalm is actually saying. I think John Calvin takes a much better approach when he reads these historically specific psalms, because he says, okay, what pressure is David facing? 
that he's talking about Shechem and Moab and Edom and sandals and wash basins and you know whatever, like what's going on historically. And then as we consider his historical pres- pressures, we can begin to see how the historical pressures that surround us, um, we, we can respond in like ways. So I think the problem is we haven't done that wider read. So, so back to the birthday party, your brother-in-law's giving you these Bible verses you know, why not pull up, pull out a Bible and say, let's read the context. Like what is actually going on? And maybe that's a question he hasn't ever thought to ask. And sometimes when you do that, you go, oh, like I've seen people be like, oh, that's not what I thought this was. And maybe then that makes them uncomfortable with their own approach to scripture enough to ask the question, okay, what should I be doing with this text? Yeah, I love that. Approaching people compassionately with curiosity, taking them back to the text, especially for people who will self-identify as a Christian nationalist. There's a Christian part in there Mm -hmm. that they at least will say they like the Bible. And so leading them back to scriptures and hopefully back to Jesus uh, is the way to change hearts. You know, another... Another thing we could do is share what we're learning from scripture too. Like, okay, this is somebody who loves the Bible. Hey, here, I'm in this Bible study or I'm reading this book or I'm studying this text and here's what is jumping out at me. And, and if, if we're reading scripture well and we have ready, you know, I don't, it's not like I sit down and think up illustrations. They just happen to me every day. You know, last week I was asked to read Daniel chapter one in church. And as I was reading Daniel chapter one, it hit me upside the head. So that might come up in a conversation. So if someone is giving me Christian nationalist readings of scripture, I might say, you know what I noticed in Daniel chapter one? I noticed the worldliness of the way that Nebuchadnezzar is choosing who gets to be part of his training program. He's choosing the young men who are without defect, who are super smart, who show a great aptitude. He's picking what he considers to be the best of the best. And you know what strikes me about that? When I look at who God chooses, he seems to go the opposite direction. It seems to have nothing to do with your IQ and your physical abilities. It seems it seems like God is actually throwing open the doors and inviting everybody in. He tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy, I did not choose you because you were better than everybody else. You were the least. And so what would it look like to live our lives according to the values of God's kingdom where everyone is welcome instead of the values of Babylon where we're looking for the best and the brightest to come be part of this secret society? And even thinking about living that out now, one of the things that I appreciated in your in your new book, Being God's Image, uh, Why Creation Still Matters, you talk about the beloved community mm. and in your book, you, you share some ways that we can be thinking about living the kingdom now. Yes. Um, there's that. I mean, there's the, the, just the famous uh, Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father art in heaven. For those of you listening, I'm sure you've, you've heard it before. Uh, but there's um, thy will be done on earth mm-hmm. as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a prayer for, for each of our lives. Mm-hmm. Would you talk just a little bit about how we can live out the kingdom now and the beloved mm. community, mm. specifically thinking about issues of justice, so yeah. economic justice, so we, yeah. poverty is rampant in many of our cities, uh, racial justice. Many of the much of the conversation about American Christian nationalism is uh, 
about white supremacy. And yeah. also many American Christian nationalists are very anxious about ethnic erasure yeah. and being eliminated or being, you know, that their way of being in the world is, is going to be outlawed or, or yeah. erased. Talk about how the beloved community, as we live that out, can speak into those concerns. I don't remember, Caleb, if I said this in the book, but when you mentioned the Lord Lord's Prayer, I couldn't help but think of something I learned from Justo Gonzalez, who is one of my favorite scripture readers. I have learned, his was the first book that I read that was interpreting scripture that's by a global Christian, you know, a non-white Christian. Uh, he, he has a little book called Santa Biblia that just rocked my world because I already had a PhD when I wrote it, when I read it. And it it was so packed. It's this little tiny book. It was so packed with things I'd never seen before that were right there in the Bible. And I thought, oh, there's actually, I'm actually missing something when I only read the Bible with people who look like me and who've had the same background that I've had. If If I'm stuck in my own little echo chamber, I'm missing all kinds of richness. So here's what I learned from Justo Gonzalez about the Lord's Prayer in his book, Teach Us to Pray. He says, notice we don't play, pray, give me this day my daily bread. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, which means our prayer is meant to be more than just self-centered, but we're praying for our community that everyone will have enough to eat, which then implies that if I have more than enough to eat, that I am to be part of answering that prayer by sharing what I have with others. That rocked my world because I have been trained to read the Bible with individualistic eyes. I, nobody, said, nobody said that's what they were trying to do, but because I've grown up in the United States and my professors have mostly been Western professors, they too have a, an individual mindset. And so we miss the communal nature, the, the beauty of the beloved community that God is calling us to be, to, to become part of. We were not saved so that we could be lone rangers and to, to achieve self-sufficiency. We were saved and brought into a community that is interdependent in which we need each other. And so that that really rocked my world. I think that's what it means to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because God's will in heaven is that everyone should have enough to eat. We see this all the way back in Genesis 1, uh, right after God tells people that we're made as his image and that we're to rule over creation on his behalf. He tells us what we're supposed to eat in chapter one, verse 29. He gives us green plants for food, seed bearing plants. And then in verse 30, he gives the same plants to animals, which means it's our job to share the food with others and to make sure animals have access to it. And so from the very beginning, our human stewardship or rulership includes sharing. And so until we truly have learned to open wide the gates and share, we have not become the kind of community God designed. And how does that speak to issues of justice in our the communities that we're living in? You know, you mentioned earlier the sense of anxiety about being replaced. And I've seen this anxiety in my own communities of origin where immigrants are described as infiltrating America, where someone looks around the room and says, man, where did all the white people go? Where there's this 
noticeable sense that I am becoming a minority in my own country. And I think, I think the best way I can, the, the best way I've thought of for helping us get past the anxiety of that is to recognize every single human being is made as the image of God. Every single human is the image of God. We can't lose this status. This is what Genesis affirms, that to be human is to be the image of God. And so other people are not a threat. They are supposed to be my co-collaborators in doing the work God's given humans to do. They actually have something I need and I have something they need and we together are meant to do this work. And so I got to thinking about the stories that we tell ourselves, our, our origin stories about who belongs here and where I came from, et cetera. And I realized, you know, most of the people that I encounter in the United States, most of them came here from somewhere else. Their people weren't here 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago, like go back far enough and they weren't here. So there are, of course, Native Americans who have been here much, 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 much longer than the rest of us. But most, most of us all, and everyone who's white came within the past 500 years. 300 years? What is it? How old is our nation now? Um, let's give it 500. So even the oldest families, white families that have been here are still only 500 years, which in the grand scheme of things is a very short stay. So I think if we can become more aware of our own history of transience, that will help us have a different posture towards others who are newer than we are. And what what I love about uh, the Old Testament is that, you know, if you, if you just go through the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and you try to find out how much of this happened inside the promised land, almost all of it is outside the promised land. It's a very small percentage of the time in Genesis when Abraham is in the land. And when God gives his people in Deuteronomy their national story like this is the this is the way you are to remember yourself you remember your identity he does not give them the story that says this is my land i was here first the story he gives them in deuteronomy 26 is my father was a wandering aramean <laughs> their story is a story of immigration they have come from somewhere else. They are living on land that God is giving them on loan. And they're giving back to God some of the first fruits of their harvest. The first thing they do is give it back to God because it's his land. It's not their land. And so baked into Israel's identity is supposed to be an acknowledgement that the land is God's and that I'm a visitor. And man, if we were that kind of biblical... If we acknowledge that this land I live on is God's land and I'm a visitor and I wasn't here first, and that means I have to share it with others, I feel like some of that anxiety would begin to dissolve. Yeah, the some of the New Testament authors certainly riff on that theme. They refer to the aliens church or Christians, strangers. aliens, strangers. Yep. Um, there was a, what was that, there, like evangelical subculture thing not of this world. Do you mm -hmm, remember those mm -hmm. stickers? Oh, and oh yeah, my this world is not my home. Mm -hmm. All of that. There's a there's a positive impulse in that, in that maybe it's 
helps us to hold less tightly to a particular plot of ground that we have a title mm. to. But the negative part of it is it, make it makes it seem like uh, beam me up, Jesus, is the plan. Yep. Like we're just going to get out of here and this whole thing's going to burn. When in fact, the Bible actually speaks of new creation, that mm-hmm. God is going to restore all things and that we're going to reign with him on earth for eternity. So this actually is our home and we're not just passing through and we're going to be here for a good long time. We're not getting out of here. <laughs> so, um, but the, the fact that it's our home does not mean that we need to claim it for private ownership and protect it from other people coming here. I think we have this scarcity mentality that if if other people come, there won't be enough for me. There mm-hmm. won't be enough. But but the the vast majority of people in the United States have far more than they need. So we're not very good at sharing. We didn't learn that lesson in kindergarten. Unfortunately, capitalism requires it. And we you mentioned a, a little bit ago on our currency in God we trust. And as of late, I'm I'm wondering which one they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned capitalism. I'm not convinced that that capitalism is by definition a hoarding or non-sharing system, mm. and or that socialism would be a better alternative. It, the kind of sharing I'm talking about is not a sharing that's legislated in the sense that, like, we should just redistribute the wealth till everyone has exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think we see that in in the Bible as being put up as the plan. There are there are things that get equalized, but not everything is. So I, I just want to be careful to say to anyone who's listening that I actually think that there are a number of different economic systems that could be could be decent ways of living in the world. The problem or the thing we need to push for is virtue. <laughs> like the participants in the system actually have to be virtuous. So there's capitalism that's virtuous capitalism, and there's capitalism that's hoarding, exploitative, whatever forms of capitalism. So one system isn't inherently better than the other um, or inherently uh, inerrant. You know, okay, so here's, here's my example. Joseph in the book of Genesis is the one whose brilliant idea it is for Pharaoh to buy up all the land because they're in a time of famine and people are starving to death. And so he designs this system that will help everyone get through the famine. And it seems in Genesis, at least, like it's a good idea, a God-inspired idea. But you turn the page and begin the book of Exodus and you find out that with a different Pharaoh at the helm, with the lack of virtue, what they just did in Genesis became a tool of oppression. And now everyone is slave labor for Pharaoh. So what was meant to be a temporary get through the famine becomes a tool of oppression when you have the wrong person at the helm. And I think any system can work that way. That's good. Really good. Well, uh, Dr. Rimes, thank you so much for being with us today. Where can people find you and your work? I am on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. 
I have an Amazon author page. All the books I've written are there, but buy them from wherever you, whatever bookseller you want to support. There's a lot of great independent booksellers like Hearts and Minds, Bookstore, Anglewood Review of Books, Regent College Bookstore. So wherever you like to get books, you can find my work. And I have a blog, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. And no MySpace? I don't have MySpace, but I almost forgot. I have a YouTube channel. I have a weekly YouTube video that is that I release called Torah Tuesday. So you can find it on Tuesdays, but you can watch it any day of the week. I'm working my way slowly through Exodus. I usually have Exodus on the brain, and I'm trying to help people engage with Scripture and see what's really there. Love it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Caleb.